The interesting thing is back in 2014, there was a ballot measure that basically put abortion on the ballot. It was a you know so-called personhood ballot measure, which would have given personhood from fertilized egg to natural death. The people of North Dakota overwhelmingly defeated that personhood measure, you know, 66 to 34. It wasn't even, you know, close and sound defeat. My name is Allison Case. I'm a family doctor and an abortion provider. And over the next few months, I'll be traveling across the country talking with abortion providers and advocates about restrictions in their states and what they think will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the upcoming Supreme Court session. I hope this podcast will serve as a jumping off point for new advocates who want to get involved with the fight for reproductive justice, including abortion access. Access to abortion is a fundamental human right. Thanks for joining me as we learn more about how we can preserve this right together. Hi, everybody. This is Allison coming to you from the scamp, as always. The audio you just heard was from Tammy Kromenacker, who is the director of the only abortion clinic in all of North Dakota in Fargo, the Red River Women's Clinic. I started with that clip because I think it's a common sentiment in a lot of these so-called conservative states where the lawmakers are passing increasingly severe restrictions on access, but the public actually has a pretty middle-of-the-road opinion about abortion. In fact, they want access protected. When I was in North Dakota, I had the privilege of meeting with lots of advocates, which was so fantastic. I mentioned Tammy Kromenacker, who I met with in Fargo, the Red River Women's Clinic. I also had the privilege of meeting with the North Dakota Women's Network, based in Bismarck, which is the capital in the middle of the state. North Dakota is the first state that I am doing an episode on that I haven't lived in, so it was very exciting and interesting for me to learn more. I was also excited about North Dakota because there's so many buffalo there. I love seeing some buffalo, and uh, that was a really great part of the trip. But buffalo aside, North Dakota is a very interesting place. I think a lot of people, when they think of North Dakota, maybe they've seen the movie Fargo, so that might be their like point of reference. But North Dakota is a, a varied state with uh, a spectrum, I'd say, of conservative politics. There's some very interesting bills that were passed this year that we'll kind of take a deep dive into in North Dakota that'll give us the opportunity to explore a couple Uh, areas within the abortion access movement in detail, including medication abortion and the false claims based on experimental evidence that the medication abortion pill can be, quote, reversed, end quote. We'll talk about an interesting attempt by the North Dakota legislature to rescind the state's support for the Equal Rights Amendment, which the state uh, agreed to support back in 1975, and much more. So, Uh, Stay tuned. I do want to go ahead and warn people up front. I had the opportunity to speak with some wonderful advocates who did share their personal stories, which is very brave, and I have endless appreciation for the fact that they did agree to share those with us. I do want to say this as a trigger warning for anyone who has dealt with sexual assault, that there are some real stories in this episode that do deal with that content, so please be aware of that. And if that's a trigger for you, there may be parts of this episode that you want to skip over. North Dakota is home to five federally recognized tribes and one Indian community located at least partially within the state of North Dakota. Those are the Mandan, Hidatsu, Arikara, the Spirit Lake Nation, and the Standing Rock Sioux. That is according to the North Dakota Indian Affairs Commission 
North Dakota is also the traditional homeland of many Sioux tribes uh, over the many centuries that indigenous peoples did occupy that area. To orient you to North Dakota politically, I would take this insight from Christy Wolf, who's the executive director of the North Dakota Women's Network. She described for me the gradient of politics across North Dakota. Well, outside of Fargo and kind of Grand Forks, I would call us very red. (laughs) Very, very red. You know, we have our more progressive legislators dabbled here and there, Mm -hmm. but the western side of the state particularly, it's very, very conservative. And unfortunately within that, they really paint reproductive health care in this really politicized black and white way. Mm -hmm. There's no middle ground, there's no discussion. And that makes it very difficult to have a conversation about policy and look at all of the gray area that they're not even considering. Yet, again, in some of our polling, looking at what North Dakota residents and North Dakota women think about access to abortion, the majority of them, at the very least, think that there are some exceptions. They're not in favor of total bans. I also spoke with Tammy Kromenacker, again, the owner and clinic director of Red River Women's Clinic in Fargo, about the political geography of the state. I always kind of describe it also is, you know, it's it's kind of a rectangle. Uh-huh. And if you take it in three slices and then, you know, the far east is going to be your more liberal progressive area. Get to the central slice. That's where Bismarck, the capital is. You get a bit more Catholic, a bit more conservative. And then the western end. I mean, there are literally cowboys and ranchers with the big old belt buckle and um, riding cowboys. And, you know, even more conservative, more, you know, very, very right wing, almost militia kind Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. thing. So, you know, North Dakota is sort of three different places depending on what the issue is. I mentioned this in the beginning of the episode, but North Dakota does have just one clinic where people can access abortion services. That is in Fargo, so it's very close to the border with Minnesota. Here's Christy again from North Dakota Women's Network to describe how people from North Dakota view Fargo. Fargo is a cool city. Some, In fact, some people refer to Fargo as like North Dakota's Minnesota. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> As you heard there, Fargo is considered pretty liberal within North Dakota itself. However, sometimes depending on gestational age or other uh, restrictions that people have, patients do end up seeking care across the border in Minnesota, often going to a larger city like Minneapolis. So this is definitely the first state I visited that had just one abortion clinic for the entire state. And we'll talk more about the challenges of being such a rural place like North Dakota, but it is definitely a barrier for patients. Having to travel hours and hours just to get to the one clinic that's available is a real barrier. Something that's interesting about the clinic in Fargo is just where it is and how prevalent it is in the community. It sits right downtown, right along a main road, which makes it challenging to protect patients from protesters, but also makes it more difficult for protesters to misbehave because they really are in the spotlight. Here's Tammy Kromenacker to talk more about this. Well, we've been in this building for 21 years. And 21 years ago, downtown Fargo is not the same as it is now. It was not as built up, not as family friendly as it is now. And 
When we opened, there were only two to four protesters that would show up and they're right there. They can be right next to the patient, but when there's only, you know, less than a handful of people, big deal, you know, that doesn't, that isn't a problem for patients as downtown Fargo has become, you know, more of a destination, you know, there's all these really cool art galleries and little independent shops and everything, you know, it's, there's a lot more traffic in downtown Fargo. Parking has become an issue. You know, we don't have our own parking lot. When we first opened 21 years ago, that was an advantage. The clinic that used to exist in Fargo had a parking lot. You've got to pay for snow removal and upkeep. And then the protesters would block the driveway. And so we saw it as a positive, you know, you can park anonymously, you know, somewhere in downtown Fargo and then just make your way over here. One of the things I do have to say that I appreciate that we are not hidden away somewhere behind some fortress wall, mm-hmm, you know, or something mm-hmm. that some clinics are, we are right in the heart of downtown Fargo. So yeah. there is no denying that there's an abortion clinic. There is no denying that the protesters are out there. I think that we get a lot of folks who want to volunteer as escorts because they drive by on a routine basis and see what it's like. And the protesters are on display. And I think that the rest of the community sees their behavior and they don't get to get away with some things that maybe they could. Mm. Um, I hate that our patients have to be, you know, right up next to them. But 21 years ago, this is the spot that we could find and it's the space we could find. And, you know, our goal would be someday to to be in another building that our patients didn't have to walk, you know, a gauntlet Mm -hmm. um, and be bullied and harassed on their way in. But my goal is to not be out of the Fargo spotlight. I think it's important for our community to remember that we're here. Like many of these conservative states that I've been to, North Dakota, in addition to having just one clinic, is also restricted by many regulations that have been passed at the state level. Here in North Dakota, I guess if you were just going to tell somebody what it's like to get an abortion in North Dakota, what is that like for people? We are the only provider. We see patients one day a week on Wednesdays only. Patients usually call and we can get them in within about a week of when they call. There is a 24-hour waiting period in North Dakota. We're able to read that verbally over the phone to patients. So we serve patients from North Dakota, parts of South Dakota, and northwestern Minnesota. We're serving a tri-state area, and patients are able to just come to our clinic, you know, that one day on that Wednesday and receive their abortion. They have to call ahead of time, hear the state-mandated information. We have to provide them with materials printed by the state of North Dakota. You know, in 2013, North Dakota passed all the banks. So we were the first to pass a six-week abortion ban. Not that I'm real proud of that, but we were the first went to the Eighth Circuit, the state appealed to SCOTUS, and even when Antonin Scalia was still alive and on the bench, the Supreme Court of the United States said, nope, we're not taking this six-week case. They also passed a 20-week abortion ban, sex selection and genetic abnormality ban, and required our physicians to have hospital admitting privileges, basically duplicating HB2 out of Texas, and that legislative-initiated personhood ballot measure. Well, the ballot measure was soundly defeated. The six-week ban, the state ended up paying our attorneys a quarter of a million dollars. Our physicians got admitting privileges. We don't provide abortions to 20 weeks, so it didn't affect us. And sex selection and genetic abnormality, we could not recall a patient who'd ever presented to us 
you know, with that. So that's in place. But North Dakota had to pay a whole lot of money. Two of the legislative sort of, you know, champions for these anti-abortion restrictions were ousted um, and replaced by pro-choice candidates. And so the legislature was sent a message. Don't mess around with this. So the 2015 legislature left abortion alone. 2017 left abortion alone. 2019, they passed the method ban. And um, the second bill was a bill requiring us as part of the state mandated information to tell women, essentially, medication abortion can be reversed, but time is of the essence, and they can find information in the state printed materials. We obviously don't believe that. We believe it's junk science and that the the studies that have found a way to reverse medication abortion are, you know, seriously flawed. We don't even want to call them studies. They're more like papers that were published. Mm-hmm. And so our attorneys at the Center for Reproductive Rights who were, you know, helping me with testimony and advocating against this bill when it passed and was signed by the governor, I said, I don't want to lie to our patients without putting up a fight. So they filed a lawsuit and the American Medical Association asked to join the lawsuit. And so uh, they are the lead plaintiff along with our medical director and the clinic itself. So we have filed for a preliminary injunction. The law was set to go into effect August 1st. The federal judge who's handling the case said that he would not have the time to rule before August 1. So both the state the state agreed to non-enforcement. So we have not had to give out this false information. And so he could rule anytime in August or September on a preliminary injunction. And so if he gives us that preliminary injunction, we don't have to say the information. And then there's another piece of the state mandated information. It says North Dakota law defines abortion as terminating the life of a whole separate, unique living human being. And we believe that that is ideologically driven language as well, and that we shouldn't have to say that. So we're actually challenging both that and the medication, so-called medication abortion reversal. And so the, the judge will decide on the preliminary injunction, and then there would be you know a trial in federal court. And if we prevailed there... The state appealed to the Eighth Circuit, but we're in the middle of litigation with it so that we do not have to tell our patients information we believe to be false and based on junk science. This bill suggesting that medication abortion is reversible is a big deal. So like Tammy said, there is currently a lawsuit in progress that the AMA has taken on, which is somewhat unprecedented in uh, the AMA's history. They don't tend to get involved with abortion. The American Medical Association has joined our lawsuit. The very first time that they've ever been involved in in a lawsuit that has to do with abortion. So it's a pretty big deal um, that they're the lead plaintiff in the case. So, you know, it's kind of the same thing that happened in North Dakota in 2013. The North Dakota Medical Association has never taken a stand, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on any of the abortion issues. They would sometimes bring doctors forward, you know, like, oh, sure, you can talk to this person. This person might testify. But in 2013, the North Dakota Medical Association finally came out with a stand against all of the abortion restrictions they were passing in 2013. So it's sort of like, all right, enough is enough. And they finally did something. So I know the AMA has been, you know, if you look back at the history, it's actually maybe the AMA way back when that 
took abortion out of like doulas and midwives hands and, and more formalized it and led to maybe where we're at now. But you know, the pendulum is swinging back the other way and and Mm -hmm. they're getting involved and saying, all right, you know, enough is enough. Tammy is absolutely right about the association between the AMA and restricting abortion. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, physicians began restricting access to abortion by working with legislators to make it illegal for other types of providers to perform abortions. So midwives, other providers, they stated that this was being done in order to protect physicians from the encroachment of other professions into their territory. Unfortunately, this absolutely contributed to making abortion much less available for patients. That makes it even more frustrating to me, and I think to many physicians, that the AMA has been so silent on this issue. For an organization that proclaims to be working for physicians and for patients, they don't seem to be doing a whole lot in this arena. But it was encouraging to see them jump on board with this case. As of this recording, the injunction that Tammy mentioned has been granted, so that happened uh, early September. So at this point, the clinic does not have to lie to its patients, and the case is ongoing now in court. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk a little bit more in depth about Mifepristone because the regulations around it are really quite ridiculous. It's a very safe medication. We have lots of data showing that it's safe, but it still remains under this heavily regulatory classification by the FDA. And I want to talk a little bit about this now just to give people some more information. So Mifepristone or Mifeprex, commonly known as the abortion pill, we discussed in our very first episode that this medication is used in combination with a different medication, misoprostol, to induce abortion. Mifeprex is widely used, is very safe, it's used around the world, but the medication is very heavily regulated. It's not a pill that you can go pick up at the pharmacy, let's say. That's because it's currently classified by the FDA under a criteria called REMS, which is Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. REMS is a set of restriction that goes beyond the label that the FDA can impose when they deem it necessary to make sure that the benefits of a drug outweighs its risks. Basically, if they feel like a medication has an extra danger to it, they can apply this strategy in order to make sure that the administration of this medication is safe. Of the over 1,700 medications, biologics, and other approved therapeutic measures by the FDA, only 74 are included in this REMS strategy. So an example of another medication that has this strategy would be drugs that can cause very low blood counts, for example. So that's a known side effect of the drug. Because of that, there's an extra set of criteria that's applied to that drug. When the person goes to pick up their prescription, the pharmacist has to ask if the patient has had a recent lab draw before refilling the medication. So that's kind of the idea behind these, that you would put an extra set of requirements with a medication in order to make it safe for the patient. So how about for Mifepristone? Because we talked about the fact that this has been approved for many years, it's very safe, but it still has these provisions. 
The provisions for mifepristone are that the drug has to be administered by a certified prescriber only in a clinic or hospital setting. So like I said, you cannot get the abortion pill at a pharmacy, for example. It has to be administered by a doctor, nurse practitioner in some states, I'll say. The second is that each provider must be specially certified by the distributor of the drug. So that means that if you want to be a prescriber of mifepristone, you have to be approved by the distributor. You have to fill out a form saying that you can assess pregnancy duration, diagnose ectopic pregnancy, and provide surgical intervention if needed, either personally or by referral. Then last, each woman who takes mifepristone must be given the FDA-approved medication guide and sign a patient agreement. So you may say, okay, well, that sounds reasonable, but let me tell you how many drugs I prescribe that are more dangerous than mifeprex that have such requirements. Zero. None. This is not this is not a normal thing. Like I said before, only 74 of over 1,700 medications have this criteria. And there's a lot of very dangerous medications out there. For example, I can prescribe Coumadin in my clinic, which has a known side effect of bleeding. Certain number of people will have a stroke or a major bleeding event when they're on Coumadin. Way higher complication rates than Mifepristone but it does not require me to do anything special. I, I send this medication to the pharmacy. There is lab monitoring that's done for Coumadin, but it isn't required by the FDA like these criteria are. So what does this mean in practice? If I want to start providing medication abortions in my clinic, I have to apply to a distributor to become certified. I have to keep my clinic stocked with the medication. I have to train my staff on the whole process, which includes keeping track of those signed FDA agreements and making sure we have copies of that and of the medication guides for the patient. In some states, then there are additional requirements for clinics that distribute medication abortions. And that's the licensing that we talked about. If you remember back in the Indiana episode, when Whole Woman's Health opened a clinic in South Bend, Indiana, only to do medication abortions, they had to comply with a certain number of regulations within the state and had to have a license, which was denied by the state for no good reason. So that's separate from the FDA requirements, but even if you just want to provide medication, if I want to be able to give a pill to a person that has limited side effects and is very safe, I have to go through all these hoops. It's insane. In an ideal world, I could just prescribe Mifepristone. It could be at the pharmacy for a patient to pick up. I could see the patient for a consult, get an ultrasound, counsel the patient, and send them to the pharmacy for their medication with a follow-up scheduled. That's it. That is how good medicine is practiced. It is good for the patient. It is efficient and safe. But instead, we have this circus of requirements that we have to go through that have nothing to do with medicine. So over 3 million women have used Mifeprex since its initial approval 16 years ago. There's probably even more than that that haven't been tracked by the FDA. To date, 19 deaths have been reported to the FDA among those who have used it, and the estimated Mifeprex-associated mortality rate is 0.00063%. Now contrast that with the background risk of a pregnancy-related death, 
and that is 0.009%, which is 14 times higher. So it is way safer if you have an undesired pregnancy to terminate the pregnancy than to carry it to term. So the rates of adverse effects for mifepristone use, serious effects such as hospital admission, blood transfusion, or a serious infection range from 0.01 to 0.7%. And these events are almost always treatable. And then other side effects such as bleeding and cramping are minor. The two serious effects described on the label, including atypical infection and prolonged heavy bleeding, can also occur after many common procedures that are done, including a vaginal delivery, medical and surgical management of a miscarriage, and insertion of an IUD. But these procedures are all routinely performed with no federally mandated requirements like the ones that exist for mifepristone. And then lastly, many European countries have used Mifeprex very safely without the requirements that are in place right now. So that was a lot, but I wanted to give you some good background about how difficult it is to provide medication abortions in general. Much of the information that I just cited was taken from an opinion piece in the New England Journal of Medicine written by a number of physicians who believe that the REMS criteria should be rolled back on Mifeprex so that this drug can be more widely available for patients. I will put a link in the show notes. I think there is a paywall, which is a whole other issue we could talk about, but I'll go ahead and put the link there and thank you to all the physicians who are doing this great work to try and make this drug more accessible for patients. Now let's look at the present issue in North Dakota, and it isn't just North Dakota. Many states are actually facing this language. Now the state wants doctors to deliver unsubstantiated information to patients when they deliver the state-mandated information. The specific language that the state has included is quote, that it may be possible to reverse the effect of an abortion-inducing drug if she changes her mind, but time is of the essence, and information and assistance with reversing the effects of an abortion-inducing drug are available. The idea that a medication abortion might be reversible is really just an idea. It's not substantiated by any evidence. The studies, and I'm using air quotes on that, that have been published on the topic are underpowered, so there are not enough people in the study for us to actually see if the effect we're looking for is real. They're poorly designed. They're not recognized as scientific by the community. They're not recognized by ACOG, the official body for obstetricians and gynecologists. They're not recognized by the AMA. None of our large bodies recognize that this is a real thing. And we can't go around endorsing experimental data as if it's real. The state shouldn't be saying, we've seen some of experimental data, and so we're going to put this in our state-mandated information. That's crazy. There are seven states besides North Dakota who have passed similar bans so far, four of them just this year. Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and Arkansas have passed similar legislation this year, and South Dakota, Utah, and Idaho have laws like this on the books already. So we'll all be keeping an eye out for this case and how it progresses. Another challenge that North Dakota faced this year was a method ban similar to the one that we discussed that just passed in Indiana, a D&E ban. I won't spend a lot of time talking about the details of this because we did that in the first episode, but this was a difficult battle that many advocates in North Dakota showed up for and fought hard against. One of those advocates is Becky Matthews, a self-described soccer mom and pro-family advocate who had her own personal story to share in response to this effort to ban the d method. Now, before I share her story, which I'm going to just play in its entirety, I do want to make very clear that though 
most of the procedures performed in the second trimester are due to fatal fetal anomalies not compatible with life. Any reason that a person needs an abortion is a valid reason. So just because I want to uplift the stories of the advocates that I spoke with, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we shouldn't judge any reason for having an abortion. And you should not feel any shame for any reason that you have a second trimester abortion. I want to give you all a chance to hear this story. So I think it's really important. And it's just one of the one of the many stories that highlight why these decisions should stay between a patient and a physician, and why the government should not be involved in them at all. So we had two children already. Um, They were six and four. um, both pregnancies. My um, oldest child was a preemie at 34 weeks, and we had some IUGR, and I had some health issues during that pregnancy. So we had him, and he was a preemie, and thought about a second one. Well, we had a second one two years and two months later, and she was born with a club foot. So it took us a while to think about, are we really going to have a third child or not, and have a third pregnancy, and what would that mean? And decided, yeah, let's have a third pregnancy. So we had a six and a four-year-old, kind of waited a little bit because our four-year-old was going to Iowa for her club, but she had some complications. So I really didn't want to (laughs) be pregnant or with a newborn. So got pregnant, no problem. Went into, God, it was like my 13th or 14 week appointment. Mm -hmm. And I was measuring like four to six weeks big. I'm like, oh, and she's like, well, maybe at your 20-week ultrasound, we'll see if there are one or two. That's all my doctor needed to say, and I was on the phone with her like three hours later, like, I need an ultrasound. (laughs) So my husband works at the hospital, so this helps a lot because (laughs) he knows all the docs. So she scheduled the ultrasound, and my husband has to come down from work, and he's running late, and she's ultrasounding me, and I'm like, "Um, did I just see two heads? She's like, "Um, yeah. I'm like, I got to call my husband. I get up to call him and he walks in the door and I'm white because I'm like freaking out. So we found out there were two. Didn't find it. We found out one was a girl. They couldn't see the sex of the other one because okay. they're all tight in there. And I left thinking, I just need to show back up at my OB's office. And she was leaving like the clinic was closing. I, the thing I was most worried about is having another preemie mm-hmm. anytime you have multiples. And how was I going to nurse twins? Like that's the first thing because I nursed my other two and my preemie had a lot of behavior and sensory issues. So I was like, how do you do it with two of them? Like, eh. yeah. so that was a Wednesday on Friday. I got a phone call from her that they were identical and they shared a placenta. And I said, Oh shit. I don't know why I knew, but I knew that wasn't good. And she said there was already a size discordance. They were equestrian twin to twin transfusion syndrome. And she had already talked to the um, maternal fetal medicine doctors in Minnesota which is, was the closest um, 12 years ago, which is about a seven-hour drive. She said, but right now they just want you to come in next week and we'll ultrasound and see where you're at. And in the next week, got ultrasounded. And you get home and when they call you to come in early for your appointment that was scheduled in two hours, you knew it's not good. Mm-hmm. So I called my husband. I said, mm, you need to come. And he got over there and she's like, they think you have twin to twin. I'm like, okay, when do I need to get to Minneapolis? She goes, they can't do anything for you there. So she pulled up where we could go. There was 13 places, and where we chose to go was Cincinnati, Ohio, and to the fetal care center. They wanted us there the next day. No, the transportation issues out of Bismarck, North Dakota, with not many flights a day, we could not get out of here. We 
ended up getting seeing Monday. So we flew out Sunday and got there. Luckily, my husband's mom and stepdad were here for their yearly summer vacation, mm-hmm. but they always come up from Arizona. So they could, they were there already to take care of the other kids. And we flew out. We decided to pick names already. I needed that before we left. And we, Monday was two hour ultrasound to check each baby. Mm-hmm. And then we had echocardiograms. Did find out that one of the twins had a mild to moderate pulmonary valve stenosis, but was not related twin to twin. Twin to twin can cause heart problems in the the recipient, and she was the recipient. But that was not. This was just a fluky thing, but it was going to make us need to deliver in Minneapolis because if they did need to do surgical intervention, that was the closest. And then they talked to us last that day, and what we ended up finding out was the heart condition of the larger twin, but there was a, about a 50% size discordance. And then also our smaller twin had a velamentous cord insertion, meaning that a cord really didn't plug in fully into the placenta. Some of it was on the uterine wall. So we had some decisions to make and none of them were pretty. It was, well, you can continue how you're going and try bed rest and try to get to buy a bit more hopefully passed. There's a laser surgery for twin to twin when it's clear cut that they go through and they do a laser on the placenta and cut. There's little blood supplies between the two placentas and they'll go cut that. And even though we didn't have twin to twin in the true sense, if one baby dies and there's blood flow to the other, it affects that other one and cause neurological issues or death. And so um, we could do that laser surgery. And then our third option was to terminate the smaller twin so that if she would die or fail, it would not affect the bigger twin. So it was this choice of sacrificing one to save the other. The most beautiful thing they said to us that day was, you don't need to make a decision right now. Go back to your hotel, sit down and decide what you guys need, what works for you and your family. What, sit down together and just look each other in the eyes and talk about it. Um, that night we sat in our room and kind of talked through things. I'm like, but we're at, we were at like, 19 weeks at that point I'm like we got to 19 weeks she's showing she's growing like can let's just give it one more week and then we talked about laser surgery and we were going to do laser surgery until I called the social worker the next day and she talked to the nurse and one of my our fears was if we cut that and cut blood supply to the smaller twin then that was still affecting her so why not just terminate right like so we didn't and doing the research there was no research at that point that that was a recommended treatment it was still kind of like (laughs) Well, you can try it. There wasn't really any data. But I do remember saying to my husband, if we turn him and eat Emily, we can never tell anyone what people think about us. Mm-hmm. Already in the back of my mind was the judgment that people have around that. And I don't, growing up in a conservative community, growing up in North Dakota, you get that sense. And that I had that. Like, how how would we ever... So that was a Tuesday. We decided we weren't going to do anything. Thursday, um, we did have an amniocentesis scheduled and another um, just to make sure there wasn't anything else going on, an infection or genetic concerns or anything, and um, an ultrasound. And they were both alive and moving on that ultrasound and, and doing okay. And things looked the same that day that they did on Monday. And we flew home on Friday, and I believe that's when I lost the twins because I got disoriented. And it's funny, I talked to another woman that didn't know when she lost her baby. And it, we, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just why I want to know a day. 
But we came home thinking we're going to wait till our next appointment and then we're going to decide if we need to terminate. We had, if we had um, negative blood flow, we had like, my husband and I had like this checklist of when our hand was going to be forced that we needed to make that decision. Mm -hmm. All made up by us, all made up between us, all we determined. No doctor, nobody said these are the guidelines. We decided, um, knowing that we'd be going to Minneapolis the next week, mm-hmm. knowing we we're probably going to have micropremies. And knowing we probably really wouldn't know how many babies were going to come home with us from that date until babies came home. One, two, none. We, I mean, we just, so we came home. I didn't feel the babies move when we lost both. I don't think during that whole time I thought about how close we were to termination. And then I hear 20-week bans. I'm like, well, that's going to pass. And I'm like, oh my God, that was me. I was 19 weeks, six, five days, whatever. When we flew home, I would have never had another chance. Like I would have had to make that decision before we were ready. Mm-hmm. Like would that beat us out of terminated her before we had all our medical information or before we were ready? I, I, I can't even imagine our discussion in that hotel room if that was looming over us. That was it. Like that was our last chance. And then having to make a decision that you might not be comfortable with. Let's talk. You know, they like to say about abortion regret. Well, making you have a deadline that's just stupid mm-hmm. could really cause some problems. We lost them in June of 2007. And it took a long time to even, I mean, I really just grieved. And then when the legislation in North Dakota came up in 2013 with all the anti choice, I met other people that shared their story with me or friends or, you know, we, we started getting older and different people have different life experiences that did terminate for medical reasons or um, needed to terminate for their, their own life choices and needed that medical option. And I decided I needed to share my story. And sometimes I swear my PTSD is worse around some of that, of people mm-hmm. thinking government and people thinking that they have any say it sometimes almost feels bullying to jump in and say no we should have told you what your choices were these are the only medical choices you have what other medical condition do we do that does a cancer patient get told you have to have radiation or you have to have the tumor removed or you have to have chemo no they give them the options they get to choose some people choose to do nothing why is it any different for me Not only did Becky testify in her state legislature, she also appeared in a commercial that was aimed at opposition to this D&E ban. My daughter was in preschool that year that the ad came out and this grandpa came up to me and he goes, you're the one in that ad, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you changed my mind. I never thought about that. I only thought of, you know, still, I don't like how his judgment was of some situations. But he goes, this isn't as black and white as I thought. And I said, no, the world is full of gray. I thank Becky so much for sharing with me and for testifying. She shared that story in her congressional chamber, and that is so powerful and so brave. So thank you so much for that. This is just one of the many stories that exist that exemplify why the government has no place stepping in and making these decisions for people. It could be like in Becky's case where there's multiple gestation and a decision has to be made 
but it could just as easily be a person who already has as many children as they want in their family and needs a termination. Maybe they just made that decision and it happens to be at a gestational age where they need a DNE. Maybe they made that decision early in their pregnancy, but because of all the restrictions that are in place at the state level, they couldn't actually get to a provider until they required a DNE. Unfortunately, this bill did pass. However, because there is an almost identical bill that passed in Arkansas being argued currently in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, the North Dakota law is on hold, basically in limbo and is not being enforced until the decision on that Arkansas law is made. The next thing I want to talk about is a kind of crazy thing that happened this past session, which was an attempt by the North Dakota legislator to rescind their support for the Equal Rights Amendment. I talked with Christy Wolf, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast is the director of the North Dakota Women's Network, about their efforts to protect the ERA this past year. There was a resolution to rescind our ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment in this legislative session. And the sponsors were all old white Republican men. Oh, God. And when I asked the bill sponsor if he had even talked to a woman legislator, he said no, because it doesn't affect women. What? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I just said, okay, thank you. Because I just didn't know what else to say. And we actually wrote an article, you know, we came out really hard that this, is, this isn't this is okay. And the testimony again, in favor of rescinding our ratification. I mean, we had, it was all surrounding what's going to happen with the LGBTQ population and that there's going to be abortion clinics on every corner. I mean, that was basically the, mm. the message that was being brought forward, these crazy scare tactics, you know. And in one of my testimonies, I talked about women having the right to vote. And I brought some of the cartoons of what they said was going to happen if women got the right to vote. And it was like men at home while women were out smoking cigars and playing cards and the men were like doing laundry. And I said, you know, there was a lot of fear used in that, that men wouldn't be able to go to work. Men wouldn't be able to vote Mm -hmm. if women got the right to vote and men would have to get married. There was, and I said, you know, that's so far from the truth. I had, I had some propaganda that I read out. And I said, we can continue to use scare tactics or we can, can or we can like look at data and the truth, you know, mm-hmm. we, equal rights is not a scary thing. Right. And so we, it was just really interesting to see that play out and see the fear and scare tactics that were being used. We had, you know, religious organizations and we had like students for life organizations and all this coming mm-hmm. out against and so when you have when you have a young college woman standing at the podium speaking against the ratification of the equal rights amendment it kind of tears at your heart a little bit mm-hmm. yeah that's scary mm-hmm. did that did that pass we got it we barely got it shot down yeah. so it did pass our house overwhelmingly wow um that's terrifying in the senate we were able and we heard <laughs> that we heard the that the catholic conference went in and said if you vote um if you vote against this it's going to be a black mark from the catholic conference because then you're not 
pro-life enough. So we, we heard from people that were actually scared to vote against it because they didn't want that black mark from the Catholic conference. We were able to work to get a verification vote in the Senate. And what that is, is basically no one knows who voted how. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vote just happens and we just get numbers. And so that happens so that people, when we have policymakers that are so fearful of an organization and having a black mark from that organization that they're not truly voting the way they feel is right, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to allow the legislators to vote the way that they truly feel and the, the way they want to, but even with that verification vote, we only got it voted down by one vote. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I was super excited. I ran and told a couple of people that had been working with us, hugged a few people, and then I went out to my car in the parking lot and I sobbed mm. because that was a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of hate from legislators, and just the misinformation that was being spread. It was like nothing I've ever seen. It's hard to believe that something as seemingly not controversial as an equal rights amendment would provoke such misinformation from the opposition. But I know there's so many advocates that fought very hard, like Christy said, against this. I want to take this opportunity to give a little bit of background information about the Equal Rights Amendment. It's a fight that's been going on since the 70s. Lots of people have fought very hard to try to get this passed. And I know for me, I didn't know a lot about it. So I want to just give a little bit of background for folks who want to get more involved. Here's from the official website. The Equal Rights Amendment is a proposed amendment to the United States Constitution designed to guarantee equal legal rights for all American citizens, regardless of sex. It seeks to end the legal distinctions between men and women in terms of divorce, property, employment, and other matters. Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said, with the Equal Rights Amendment, we may expect Congress and the state legislatures to undertake in earnest, systematically and pervasively, the law revision so long deferred. And in the event of legislative default, the courts will have an unassailable basis for applying the bedrock principle. All men and women are created equal. So we don't have time to do a terribly deep dive into the ERA, but I would love to because I think the opposition to it is fascinating and disturbing. (laughs) I think for most people, probably most Americans, although I don't like have polling data, I'm sure it exists, would agree that the idea that men and women should be equal is not a scary thing. That seems like a very normal thing, like an important thing. But let's do a quick review just of how an amendment is added to the Constitution. I think it's important to understand because I think it helps us understand why the legislature of North Dakota would be trying to rescind their support for the ERA. Although, to be totally honest, I don't think they like have some kind of secret plan. I think it's just it was just a statement they were trying to make. So the traditional constitutional amendment process is that Congress would pass a proposed amendment by a two-thirds majority vote in both the Senate and the House, and then it gets sent to the states for ratification by a vote of the state legislators. And when three-fourths of the states, which is currently 38 of the states, have ratified the amendment, it becomes part of the Constitution. So far, this is the way that every amendment in the Constitution has been added. The other way is to get three-fourths of the states to support it, and the ERA is very close. And with some technical adjustments, they're really one state away. In 1979, five states repealed their support for the ERA. That was Idaho, Kentucky, Nebraska, Tennessee, and South Dakota. 
but it's unclear legally if that actually would hold up in a court. And in fact, it's unclear that even if this rescindment in North Dakota would have passed, if that would have held up in court, if the ERA would go forward for ratification. Some argue that the ERA is time limited, that in the original amendment, there was a time limit within it, but there's precedent for amendments having gone over their original time restrictions. And basically what would have to happen is Congress would have to pass a statement saying that it's okay for the ERA to be ratified with a new time limit in mind. Advocates for the ERA are now focused on three states mainly to get one of them to pass the ERA so that it could go to Congress. That's North Carolina, Tennessee, or Florida. And now that as of these recent election results, now that Virginia is blue, Virginia is a possible state that could pass the ERA, which would be a huge deal. It would get us to 38 states uh, and to the next phase in which Congress will have to pass the ERA. And that may include Congress passing some kind of bill that includes a new timeline for the ERA so that the old timeline is null. And it may also possibly include court challenges to the fact that these previous states had rescinded their support for the ERA. But like I said, there's a lot of supposition that that will not stand up in court. Legislation to increase that timeline for the ERA has been introduced in the past, but has not made it out of committee. So that is also somewhat of a problem. With that background in mind, let's go back to our current story. In 1975, North Dakota ratified the ERA. The seven male Republican lawmakers that wanted to nullify the support in a public statement said that, quote, the deadline for ratification of the gender equality amendment passed 40 years ago and is no longer valid. It's interesting because in 2007, North Dakota legislators passed a resolution encouraging a recommitment to the final passage of the ERA. So that just shows kind of the sea change that has happened in many states around the country in the past 10 to 15 years. And I will say a lot of that having to do with millions of dollars being pumped into state legislators by large conservative think tanks, organizations, whatever you want to call it. Unfortunately, this bill to rescind support for the ERA passed the House stunningly easily, 67 to 21. All eight Democratic women in the chamber voted against it. One Republican woman also voted against it. Uh, And then of note, only 30 of North Dakota's 141 legislators are women. When the bill moved to the Senate, it faced fierce opposition. Many women within the North Dakota Women's Network and others across the state testified against this bill. Fierce advocacy across the state from these women really got to the senators. And they were able to just narrowly defeat it, but with a 24 to 23 vote, which is really depressing to me (laughs) like you would think that this would be a knock out of the park you know why why would why to pull back support for this and even though there's nothing in the era about abortion that's the angle that the people who want this rescinded are taking Linda Thorson, the state director for the conservative religious group Concerned Women for America, said the ERA would expand abortion rights and a, quote, genderless agenda under the guise of women's rights. So the reason these conservative groups want the ERA support rescinded is because they believe that it's equivalent to supporting abortion and to supporting LGBT rights. And 
I think this just goes to show that a large liberal progressive group is absolutely intersectional. We have to work together because there's groups of people who just don't want people who are different from them to have any rights. <laughs> it's uh, really disturbing. But this is not uncommon. The The people who oppose this amendment historically have always used abortion as a scapegoat for what really sounds like it's actually their hate. Like they don't want LGBT people to have rights. They don't want women to have rights. And really disturbing. So I will put some more links in the show notes in case you want to do your own deep dive into the ERA. I want to move on now to a little more positive uh, segment where I talked with many great advocates from North Dakota about what it's like to live here, what it's like to be an abortion access advocate here, and what advice they have for folks who want to get involved. Like I mentioned, I had the opportunity to speak with lots of great advocates, and I think the two things that I heard multiple times from different people were, uh, one, that there are no seven degrees of separation, like Kevin Bacon's style. It was a Kevin Bacon that had a seven degrees of separation. I think in North Dakota, we're about one and a half. So um, <laughs> you're the second person who's made that analogy today. Is that right? <laughs> The voice you just heard was Amy Ingersoll Johnson, who's a volunteer member of the North Dakota Planned Parenthood Advisory Committee and a board member with the North Dakota Women's Network. I talked a lot with Amy about the stigma around abortion and how this stigma is especially difficult in rural areas where there are very tightly knit communities. We don't have great solutions. I mean, there there's the cost differential. There's lack of childcare. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, if you have to take three days, essentially. Yeah. That's that's a big ask and that's a big expense. Mm -hmm. And then and then it goes back to the stigma again. They know then. Mm -hmm. Your small community knows what's going on and right. you've been gone for 3 days and it's it's really tough. The stigma that exists in these rural areas is very real and impacts patients immensely. But in contrast to that, another thing I heard from many advocates was about this idea of North Dakota nice with the North Dakota nice that we have in our state. Mm -hmm. There's kind of this North Dakota nice. We still try to play North Dakota nice. As you can hear, this concept came up in almost every interview that I had. Being from the Midwest, I think this is actually somewhat of a Midwest phenomenon. When I hear the words North Dakota nice, what I think of is a person who is going to be very nice to your face, because being polite is a Midwestern value that is highly cherished. But when it comes to voting for policies that are actually for equality and improving the lives of all citizens, people don't actually do that. Now, there's a certain group of anti-abortion folks who do not play by the rules of any kind of Midwest nice. But in general, I think it applies to just anyone you'd meet in the street, your neighbors, your friends, that people are going to be very polite to you when you talk about these things and in general kind of shy away from this this kind of conversation but it's an interesting phenomenon and I found it interesting that it came up at almost every interview so it's definitely pervasive throughout North Dakota. Another thing that came up in multiple interviews that I had with advocates was this connection between intimate partner violence advocacy and abortion advocacy and I do think there's some really important connections there especially 
in the ways that we think about power and control. Liz Snyder, who's an active member with the North Dakota Women's Network and who also works with the State Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Coalition doing rural outreach, shared her story with me. And we also talked extensively about this connection between domestic violence and abortion advocacy. I personally got involved and really started getting involved in reproductive rights when I was put in my own situation. I used to be not a believer, you know, of being pro-choice. You know, I really wasn't pro-choice until when I was 19, I was put in a really, just really, really bad situation. Um, I had just gotten out of a very abusive relationship domestically with an ex of mine. And then on top of it, I was sexually assaulted um, after, you know, and it was just a, just a huge mess. And I found out I was expecting. And to be honest, I was in a horrible place, you know, at the moment I, I knew I couldn't do this. I just couldn't do it because of my own mental capacity at the time. And I went through with my own decision to proceed with an abortion because that was my, that was the best option for me. And after that whole experience, it just really opened up to my eyes the importance of reproductive health care, basically for women to be able to have that choice no matter what, for no one to judge that choice regardless of what it may be. You know, I grew up in a small town. I consider North Dakota to be extremely rural. Even Bismarck is very rural. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're taught, you know, from a young age that it's not okay, you know, to seek abortion. Women who do that, they're bad women. You know, they're going to regret it for the rest of their lives. And the reality is that was never how I felt. I spoke with Liz further about how her work with domestic violence survivors has impacted her work with abortion advocacy, how both of these things are tied in with women being able to make their own choices. I also spoke with another advocate who suggested that domestic violence organizations were a good resource for folks in rural areas who want to get involved but maybe don't have an abortion clinic near them or don't have an organization that's doing reproductive health, reproductive justice work. And I think that's a really important point. I'm a little biased because that's really, I think, where I got my first introduction to advocacy. I did a lot of volunteering work in medical school with a intimate partner violence organization that also had an attached shelter. And the first thing that you learn when you become an advocate for survivors of uh, intimate partner violence is about the power and control wheel. So anyone who's been involved in this work knows about it. It's a graphic that shows how perpetrators use their power to control their victim. So there's lots of different ways that abusers assert power and control. And that could be by controlling finances, by emotional abuse, by physical abuse, by controlling who a person may have contact with. So there's all these ways that an abuser can control someone. Well, when I learned about the laws that are in place to keep people from accessing healthcare services like abortion, I immediately thought of the power and control wheel. The way in which people are trying to control access to healthcare is a form of abuse. Like it is exactly in line with this idea of power and control. So I think that not only are intimate partner violence organizations doing great work and a great place for you to find your people. I think also it's a great place for people to develop an understanding of what power and control really is and how all of these things are connected. 
which again brings us back to this idea of reproductive justice, this idea that people have a right to choose when and how they are going to have children. And any efforts to control that are things that we should be fighting against. Let's go back to this idea of finding one's people, because I talked with a lot of the advocates and with Christy, the director of North Dakota Women's Network, about this, about how do we find our people when we're in these conservative spaces that are often very rural. One thing that we've done at the Women's Network to help people find their people, uh, we have Feminist First Fridays across the entire state. And so right now we currently have nine locations. We have one that started this year in a very rural town in northeastern North Dakota, and they have like 20 women showing up. Um, so we're out there. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, awesome. That's such a cool idea. But so we, and we're working, one of our goals for this next year is to grow those. Um, we're n- we don't have as heavy a, a presence in Western North Dakota, which of course is more conservative, but we know that there are men and women. Um, our, our Feminist First Fridays have people from all walks of life. We have diversity in age, culture, gender, um, it's incredible to walk into them. I've traveled to all of them. I've been to most of them twice now um, in the two years I've been here. And it's it's incredible to walk in and just see the conversation that happens. Um, and then when we're in the middle of the legislative session, it's also great to be able to be like, hey, we have this policy. We have this legislator from Jamestown that is on the fence. I have this group in Jamestown. Can you guys get on the phone, emails, town halls, wherever you see this legislator over the next three, four days, can you contact them? Here's some talking points. That's been great. So any way that women can find their people and get as organized as you can. So Feminist Fridays, check it out. If you're from North Dakota and you're listening, I'm going to put links in the show notes about uh, how to get in contact with North Dakota Women's Network and what an awesome opportunity for organizing across the state. The last thing I asked advocates was what advice they had for being an advocate in North Dakota. Don't give up. I know at times there may seem like it's just, it's nothing's getting better or you're not going to find anyone like you. But the true reality is there are people like you. You just got to unfortunately find them mm-hmm. and just, yeah, just to not give up. And on top of it, um, just to keep speaking out for what you believe is right. Be organized and believe in yourself. I have cried in the bathroom of the Capitol, mm. and then I have dried my eyes, and then I have went and I have stomped into someone's office. No. So it's okay to cry. Mm. It, we, we've all been there. We have our tough days, and, and we just need to continue to pick ourselves up and have our friends that find us in the bathroom mm. <laughs> and give us a tissue. The last two voices you heard were Liz Schneider and Christy Wolf. That about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, Thank you so much to everyone I was able to interview. Just mentioned Christy Wolf with the North Dakota Women's Network, all of the advocates, Liz Snyder, Amy Ingersoll Johnson, Becky Matthews, and Tammy Kermanacker with the Red River Women's Clinic. I'll be posting links in the show notes to North Dakota Women's Network, Red River Women's Clinic, and to a fund for North Dakota women 
If you feel compelled to donate to the show, please donate to that local abortion fund to help people in North Dakota get access to abortion. Music in this episode is by David Hyde, and you can find his information in the show notes. Thanks very much, and I'll catch you next time.